Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Well, I said you couldn't get a better passage to sum up all that we have been talking about over the past four weeks. If you're just joining us, we've been talking about social justice. We've been learning over the past four weeks that justice in the most simple of terms biblically is to put things right where you are. Uh, the first week we realized that justice is not a matter of where you stand on either ends of a political spectrum. In week two, M said that justice, what is it? It's a matter of aligning yourselves with the purposes of God, which should be so clear by now that we've seen from the scriptures, that he is a God of justice. That last week when we asked, how do we do justice? It's as simple as the story of the Good Samaritan. See the need, be inconvenienced, carry the burden and carry out justice to whoever happens to cross your path. And this morning now we ask, what's next? What do we do now? Uh, we've already, I guess, given one answer in what we want to start birthing as a community. But what does it mean for you? Well, uh, Kristen and I, we've, we've, been in, we've been indoctrinating our kids into an Australian institution it's called the Small Roast at the local RSL, and they've been loving it. it it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thing to do. It's a great family dinner time. Monday nights, we go down to the RSL. We love it. DY is a great club down there. It's very snazzy. We like going there because it's better than most restaurants. It's cheap as chips. The kids love the chips. And the only challenge with the RSL is that midway through a, a nugget this week, uh, the poor kids had the life scared out of them because this booming voice comes down from the speakers at six o'clock on the dot. It says, uh, they shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. And everyone jumps up and everyone begins to face the West, which was Zach's favorite time of dinner because he got to stand on his chair at the dinner table. And so he's standing there facing the West on his chair like this with all everyone else there listening to the ode. And then he asked me this question at the end of it all, still on the end of his chair. He says, Daddy, what's lest we forget? Any tips on how we answer that question? How do I explain to my little guy all that it means? How do I explain to my little guy that in his life and in a generation that is witnessing some of the greatest levels of peace in world history. That son, sometimes you will find that there are things and there are reasons to move outside your own comfort zones. There are things to live for. There are things to even die for that are bigger than your own self-interests. What is lest we forget? And you know, that's not even half the point for me of, of the whole story. The thing that hit me this week is, as I was telling him about his great-granddad and Kokoda, trying to explain all that sort of stuff, the minute I said great-granddad, I thought, hang on for a minute. Could it be possible that we're about to lose an entire generation to the practical notion, to the realities, to the tangible feeling, because they won't hear the stories from the mouths of them themselves? Will we lose an entire generation to the notion of living for something bigger than yourself. Lest we forget. 
Lest we forget is what Micah said, the great prophet and a contemporary of Isaiah to the nation of Israel who had fallen to all the trappings of the Assyrian Empire that had invaded the region of Israel. And as they were so caught up in all of the trinkets and all of the greed and all the materialism around them, out speaks this prophet on God's behalf who says, Lest we forget why we are here, my people. Deuteronomy says that I have... I have saved you, I have rescued you to be such a light to the nations in your mercy and your justice, your caring of the orphan and of the widow, that people should look in on you and see such a nation of beauty that it will declare me to the watching world. Lest we forget. And then I read this passage and I go, the irony is I'm going to have two lest we forget conversations with kids this week one with my own kid and one with God's children this morning lest we forget church lest we forget why we are here lest we forget what it is and we've had four weeks of it that God is calling us to what we'll see from this passage is the big picture of justice the balance of doing justice the beauty of doing justice because how How can I explain this morning to you that there is something greater for you to live for than the mundaneness of Monday tomorrow? That the big picture of justice is this. The God, when he says through Micah, do justice, is not just a call to a cause. It is the call on your life towards all humanity. And I don't know about you, I get so caught up in my individual call. Lord, what do you want me to do? Where do you want my ministry to go? What's your will for my life? I'm sure maybe some of you have had that conversation with him. But have you stopped to think how often do we think of his general call to humanity? To do justice. To reflect his heart to the people that he so dearly loves. And so hopefully now we would have a new lens, a new set of glasses that, that we have adopted as people that say, could it be that every interaction, every interruption, every moment that I have with someone in need could be God's sovereign hand in ordaining all of these circumstances that I might put things right where I am so that he can heal and restore the world through us. That's the big picture. Have you got that? If you haven't got it, I've totally failed. <laughs> Four weeks of a sermon series. You too, Em, you're in this with me. <laughs> if anything that you walk away from after these four weeks, it is that. He has called you to put things right where you are. That's the big picture of doing justice. Now, the balance, there is a balance of this. I've got to do a little bit of spiritual osteopathy. I, was, I found out what osteopathy was the other day at the physio because I was reading all the brochures. Osteopathy is some weird medical alternative that basically is more concerned with your structural alignment than it is with your physical strength. And the argument and the evidence is that if you get the alignment and the structure right, then you don't need as much strength. The, the power is innate. And what we see here in this passage is that this is a dose of spiritual osteopathy. In other words, there is an incredible balance, an incredible alignment, an an incredible bringing together of things at either end of the spectrum. 
Because often when people preach Micah chapter 6, this is, this is like the ultimate sermon outline. Like the one, the one verse in chapter 8 is like an entire sermon outline. To act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. There's my three points. <laughs> it's a good three-pointer. Most preachers preach three pointers, three do-its. Just do this, this, and this. And actually, I've got a revelation this week. That's not what this verse is saying. There is an incredible tension here. To use the illustration from the other week, this is a baby's mobile. There are two arms that are going out from this passage. One is the arm of action, the balance on the arms of action, and the other arm going up the other way in the mobile is the balance of your attitude. The first is a balance of action. On one hand, do justice and love kindness. The two seem to be in opposite of each other. One is active, one seems passive, right? And so we see that in the way that Christians enact social justice. There is the active end of the spectrum. We know what these people are like. They're the activist Christians. They're the ones that are antagonistic. They are provocative. They are in your face. They're almost downright abusive. They're elements of the Christian community that you know who they are because when you see what they do and how they act and how they talk, you flinch. Or either that you hide because you go, I just can't see that being a representation of the heart of God. They're too triumphalistic. On the other end of the spectrum, you have those that are all action and then you have those that are all apathy. That they, they love kindness that there is, uh, there is an, an inner action, but there's no outer action. They seem to be passive in all of this. It's, it's those elements of church that say, hey, we're here to do evangelism and discipleship and have a great church service. And if we get to justice, then that would be a nice optional. The church, are we going to be a church that's abusive action or passive apathy? The balance is that it needs to be a bit of both. When you see Jesus, he is both, he is both boldness and grace. He's both truth and mercy. In his trial that you read through in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, they strike him. He says straight up in his trial, why do you strike me? He was saying that because it was an illegality in the trial. He spoke up against the injustice that was against him. And yet, at the end of it all, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you see the delicate balance? God needs Christians that are in the middle of all of this. Action or apathy. The other balance we see in walking humbly is both an outer and an inner dynamic that there is, a, there is a dynamic by which we've been talking about this for three weeks, that until you understand the gospel, you can never get this balance right. And here's what I mean. Martin Luther said, outside of the gospel, we only ever serve each other out of self-interest. Until we've come to a realization that we have been given God's perfect justice and mercy when we were undeserving, can we rightfully extend that to others? Because here's what will happen. If you think that you've got to work at this justice stuff to earn your favor with God, if you think that you've got to be good in order to be right with God, then you're going to be serving people out of a totally different dynamic than what Micah says here. You'll say it's for their sake, but it's not for their sake, it's for your sake. 
you will say that you are serving them, but it can happen out of a fear that God is not going to bless you because you're not doing it. But you could also be doing it out of pride because, oh, they're the needy and they need it. And I'm a Christian. But only until you see the gospel that at the depths of it all, you were as needy, as needy, as needy can be. And God bestowed his grace upon you. Only then can you move out of that place to serve them, not for their sake, not for your sake, but for God's sake. So it's the balance between in our outer walking pridefully and humbly with God. Can you see the nuance in all of this? Man, we could do a whole other four sermons on this. What it means simply is that Christians need to do justice with an incredible nuanced balance. The whole, whole mobile doesn't work unless there is both the balance between the arm of action and the arm of attitude. Well, um, if, if you're part of the team here, Mike is probably already doing it. Uh, my, my teammates, when I get on a roll like this, they start making aeroplane noises or sounds in team meeting, right, man? What they're trying to say is ground this, Sam, ground this a little bit. Uh, I've, I don't know, being the preacher, I've got, I've got a predisposition to think above the line, as they say in the McKinsey model. I think above the line a bit too much. Let me ground this a little bit for us. Let me skate across many of the questions that you would have been asking over the past four weeks. In other words, what are the practical implications of all of this? If we get the bigger picture, if we get the balance between action and attitude, what are the practical implications of all of this? What questions have you been asking? They're questions like this. First one, how much should we help? Last week we learned that anyone who has to meet a need, it's going to cost you. It has to burden you. It's going to be expensive. It's going to be time-consuming. Should we be fully established corporately and individually before we reach out? What percentage of the church's budget should go towards this stuff? Elders. Uh, how, how do I give in to that? How should it cost me? Uh, I'll give you another tip. Any of these social justice investments that we do as a church when we invest into the ki kingdom, here's a practical one, should be above your tithes. Let me share with your church a real interesting dynamic that we have as a church. It's getting better. But each time in recent years that we have given into an initiative like Madagascar Beyond Us, there's been a corresponding dip in our offerings. Edward said, how can, how can we say that we are carrying one another's burden if we have not been burdened at all? How much would it cost us? How much should we help? Whom do we help? Uh, last week we said anyone who crosses your path, but then you're saying under that, well, do I give to every person on the street that's reaching out? How am I ever going to get to a business meeting in the city if I'm having to give out? They're all in my path. What do I do in all of that? And I guess my answer to that is, look, if you get the principle that we've said of doing one, what you wish you could do for everyone, then there is an element in which you can focus upon that need and ministry and know that you are doing what, you're, what you can in that moment. And you may be able to pass past that person without the sense of guilt that we all know all too well. But it only comes when there is a dedicated effort to move into helping others. Do I give to every person? Uh, when, when do I give to every person? Jonathan 
Edwards argues that you wouldn't wait until you're destitute to ask for help. So why wait until someone else is destitute to ask for help or ask if they need help? Whom do we go to? When does it start and end? Does the person have to go to church? Do they have to be a part of Northside? Should there be conditions on, their, on our mercy? Should they have to get their life together? What, what does all of that mean? Look, there's no doubt that in Galatians 6.10 it says, let us, not, uh, let us not stop doing good for all believers. There is a reality in the balance that it, it would be incongruous to not help your brother and sister within the church as you were going out to do justice, that you do justice at the expense of those brothers and sisters who are desperately in need for one another. But there are questions around whom we help in that. What ways do we help? We've been talking, justice can be broken into three different levels, relief, development and reform. What we've been talking about last week is primarily relief. Relief is to meet the physical and immediate tangible needs of a person in need. But when you start to look at justice and the nuances of it, you see that there's whole other levels. There's not only relief, but then there is development. Development is how do you move an individual or a family or a whole society to a point in which they are now self-sufficient. It means job creation, economic development, structural reform. And then the level on beyond that is, is social change. It's this weird dynamic that happened once that when Christians got justice, they did a little thing like abolishing slavery. And when you move out to this realm, the, the church has less and less of a place to play and yet partnership plays a more key role in all of this. But can you see the levels of how this stuff works as well? We need about six more weeks on this. <laughs> the point I want to make about all of this is when it comes to what do we do, the question is, as a church, will we be, will we be a church that is ambitious to move to this level of justice? Could it be that in five or 10 or 15 years' time, we are a church that changes society? From where do we help? <laughs> From where do we help? I had a roommate at a, a conference this year. You couldn't have picked two guys at opposite ends of the spectrum. His name's John Owen and he runs, a, he runs a, an operation in Western Sydney called Urban Neighbours of Hope. And John has gone to go and live into the neighbourhood of Mount Druitt as his act of doing justice as a Christian. He lives in the neighbourhood. The people are in his house. They're eating with him. He's, he's left everything he had behind to be into that, that world with them. Where do we help? Should we move in? Should we not move in? Should we do the same? Is it crow's nest only or is it your neighbourhood? Have I, have I talked through practicalities or am I just asking questions? <laughs> and that's the point. Can I answer this? No. Can the elders answer this? No. How do we work this out? We have to work this out in community. And it's why we've appointed Ben to do what he's doing. It's why we have groups together. It's why we want people to be connected into a connect group. It's why we want people to serve together. You know, the Bible is full of simple, simple answers. They're just very difficult to apply. And I've got no doubt that we all have the same ends when it comes to doing justice, but there will be multiple paths that we call the means. And you need to work this out in community. So it should be all clear. They're the practicalities. Uh, let's get back to it, back to where I love to be, up in the big headspace. We've talked about the we've we've talked about the big picture, we've talked about the balance. Let's finish with the beauty of justice. There was a guy once called Jesus. 
who said, let your light shine before all people. Let your good deeds shine so that people might look at these and they might glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, go and do such good deeds of mercy and justice amongst people that when the world looks in, they go, what sort of God is that? The beauty of all of this is that we are supposed to be a community of such action, of such mercy, of such outreach, of such deeds, that what Jesus is saying is that when the world looks into this community, they should see an alternate city. They should see people that are getting along. They should see how money and power and sex are being subordinated to the ways and the beauty of God. They should be seeing the way that racism is being dispelled. They should be seeing the ways in which ultimately humanity is truly meant to be lived. That's the calling that we call this to, and and that is what the world needs, right? The world needs simply the message of Jesus, and that message backed up by lives that live it. And in fact, is that not what we've talked about before? Isn't that not why and how Christianity first exploded? Why did Christianity rip through the countryside like a wildfire? Well, it's because, basically, that's what the followers of Jesus were like. Rodney Stark in his book called The Rise of Christianity, he describes where the cities of the Greco-Roman Empire, how uh, they were impacted by this in the first couple of centuries when the plagues, the Roman plagues, ripped through. He said, Most Christians during the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Many departed their life serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbours and they cheerfully accepted their pains. They lost their lives in this manner and many elders and ministers did so as well. Lest we forget. Lest we forget what we live for. Lest we forget that we are the hope that we have that at the end of it all, even through death, we win. We win. That Look, lest... My heart breaks at the moment that we live in a world where we have got a problem of Olympic proportions. And I say that quite deliberately. I think many of our lives, we're living many of our lives in Olympic fragility at the moment. We live our lives in a wonder of, may we have some joy and may we have some excitement and may we have a wonderful community together. But I really do hope a bullet hole doesn't come through the media center. That we do all we can to block this out. And yet we know the fragility that we're only separated from the realities of this world by the thinness of canvas in our own lives. And it constantly breaks in. We've got a problem of Olympic proportions. What the world needs is not a concrete Christ looking over all of the top of that, but a living Christ through his people that come down off the mountain and embed into the lives and the mess and even the danger. And so that embrace is not clinical and concrete, but warm and real and tangible. And he says, that's your role. That's what you're to do if you're to put things right where you are. That was the beauty that we saw, that society saw, that history saw in the first century. When the cities were falling apart, the Christians moved in. And Christianity exploded because, why? Because it was beautiful. 
It was beautiful. When our words match our deeds, there'll be a power, a powerful transformation. There'll be both a credibility and a plausibility. They're an argument that what Jesus said and did is true, but they will see in the lives of people that not only is it true, but it works. And we see that it's not a matter of doing all evangelism and all discipleship, or it's not a matter of doing all justice, but it's a matter of both. When we preach the great news of Jesus, that can be the best justice and the best relief and the best healing that a person can get. But at the same time, when we match that with deeds of mercy in people's lives, then we create a foundation of power to speak into. Let me give you a case study. God gave me a case study. I was talking the other week about our mate Billy, who's around the area here. And I'm not using Billy because oh, he's some cause to be put up on a pedestal and for the sake of a sermon illustration. I think God just placed him um, in my life at least for, for this time and this season because I haven't seen Bill for a matter of months. I talked about him last week, wasn't it? It was last week. So Tuesday morning, I, I walk into the office. I hadn't even put my laptop bag down. Nine o'clock, we're about to do our team meeting, and, and the guys say, Sam, Billy's at the door. And I said to the team, Can you just get him to make an appointment? <laughs> and they're saying to me, Sam, is there a posture of interruptibility about you at the moment? <laughs> and so God placed him in there, and uh, we hung out, we had a cup of coffee, we went across the road, we had some brekkie together, and we caught up. and heard about all the things that are going on in his life and the chemo that he's going through and, uh, and he's looking the best that he's been in a long time. But it was uh, a story that he shared with me that was quite profound. He said he was at Chatswood where he normally hangs out uh, the other week and he was trying to eat some lunch and he was sitting down on the stairs of a church, the Church of Scientology. And so he's sitting there trying to eat his lunch and some people came out from the church and they said, get off our steps. He said, well, I'm just eating my lunch. They said, get off our steps. I'm just, he said, I'm just eating my lunch here. Get off our steps. So they forced him off the steps. Get off our steps. We're a church. And he said, you're not a church because you don't act like one. Let's pray. Father, We know that you're up to something. You have been throughout all of history. And all we can do now as we come to this moment of ministry is to respond to that still small voice. Respond to those lines, those words, whether it's been anything over these past four weeks for us in this place. Those moments in which we've stirred our heart or the things that we've seen the things that have resonated with us, the things that have stirred us, the things that have awoken us, Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray for a new awakening in this place, a fresh awakening. Because I know this is, this is a church that's had a halfway house. This is a church that's had an amazing ministry to recovering alcoholics and drug addicts. This is a church that's constantly sought the outsider as part of our fun fundamental DNA. This is a church that's run op shops. This is a church that's provided meal after meal after meal. Awaken that, Father. 
reawaken that heart and that spirit within us. Start the conversations. Help all of us to begin to dream again. May you be that voice in our life through the speakers, lest we forget, Father, why it is that we're even here. As we do that as a community, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be in and amongst us. You will push us. You will stretch us. You will prod us. You will provoke us. And in so doing, may we do the same in the world in which we live. I don't know what you're going to do, Lord. It's your church. It's your calling. It's your plan for history. We just want to be a part of it. I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.